God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I was a pretty serious tennis player growing up. My parents would cart me around to all kinds of tournaments all over the state of North Carolina, and even across the South. They uh, put a lot of miles on our, on our car. They were very kind to do that. And over time, I uh, became familiar with a regular crew of other kids from North Carolina, from around the South, whom I consistently encountered as my opponents. That was how I got to know each of these people, these other kids around my age. He was, in each case, a kid standing several dozen feet from me on the other side of the net, usually wearing a hat, making line calls, running down forehands, pumping himself up when he hit a good shot, and expressing frustration when he made a mistake. They were my opponents, and the only real personal interaction we would normally have was the handshake at the end of the match, often a very cold and forced encounter, especially if there had been disputed line calls between us during the match. So that was how I knew them. That was how I knew my opponents, right? They were just these impersonal faces on the other side of the net. So it was always a bit jarring when in the middle of a tournament, there was a rain delay. Why? Why was that jarring? Well, because it meant that I and my opponents often found ourselves face to face in the tennis club lounge or the restaurant nearby or the indoor recreation center with our hats off maybe wearing regular clothes, eating a sandwich, maybe playing pool or ping pong. Normally in such situations, we wound up actually talking to each other and about things other than tennis. So maybe I would discover that I and my opponent from the day before both liked the same kind of burrito or that we happened to be listening to the same kind of music in our respective headphones. Outside of the context of competition, where we encountered one another as strangers generally intent on pummeling each other into the court, we discovered that we actually had a lot in common, that maybe we could actually be friends, right? That uh, this person I had always seen in my mind's eye as this kind of hostile face on the other side of the net might not be so different from me after all. These sorts of realizations happen often in human relationships, and they often feel a bit like interventions of grace. Maybe you and your next door neighbor who speaks little English and with whom you therefore have had almost no conversation find out that both of you love to play chess. And this silent game becomes the basis of a new, mostly nonverbal friendship. It's all the more powerful when the commonality you discover is a humbling one. Maybe instead of chess, you and your neighbor discover that you have in common the estrangement of a child from your respective families. All of a sudden, in the presence of this person, the tense pressure you always feel to hide something that causes you pain and shame is released, and you find yourself comfortable and honest in a way that you're not with most other people. There's a wonderful old English word that I think captures well the spirit of this phenomenon I'm trying to describe. The word kin, K-I-N. It's 
It's a word that we usually think of, if we use it at all, in the context of families. So think like kith and kin at Christmas time, usually when we think of that phrase. And that's not wrong to think of it in the context of families. The reason we so associate it is, uh, can really be seen in the etymology of the word itself, right? How, 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 the, how the word came to be, what other words it fits in with. It's related to the word kind, as in like a category or a sort of thing. We are of a genealogical kind with those who share our ancestry, our biological brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles and parents and all the rest. If we follow the etymology the other way then, we might say that the instances I'm describing involve a discovery of kinship with people with whom we thought we didn't have anything in common. Precisely insofar as we discover that we are of a kind with them, right? We share a certain quality or characteristic of being. But there's another etymological link here, which is equally striking, and perhaps more so because it's just so obvious. Maybe all of you already realized this, but this was a, a recent discovery of mine. This word um, kin and kind, think about the word kindness, right, as a moral quality being rooted precisely here in the sense of kinship or kindredness. This recognition of sharing a certain kind or kinship with another. And out of that commonality, treating the other as we would want ourselves to be treated. Because we realize that this person is, in all the ways that really matter, just like us. Of a kind. Now, what does all this have to do with the Pharisee and the tax collector? God, says the Pharisee, I thank you. God, I thank you. Well, that's a pretty good start to a prayer, right? That's uh, the kind of beginning that you find in many a psalm all through the Old Testament, in many a Christian prayer session. It's even in the Greek, Eucharistic. The word for I thank you in the Greek is Eucharisto. I suspect that's how you often start your prayers, and rightly so. You address God, first of all, in the second person as a you since God is not just some abstract idea out in the ether that we think about in the third person, like a, a, a he out there, the you that we address. And then you thank him, right? One of the fundamental modes of relating to the creator and savior of all that exists. But if you're following along with the trajectory of those psalms or with the Christian tradition of prayers, if you're allowing yourself to be tutored by those psalms, say in, in the Book of Common Prayer, for instance, the, the collects, like the ones we say at the beginning of the liturgy, then what comes next? What comes next after I thank you? What's the proper material occasion for our gratitude? Always, and without exception, things that God has done. The psalmist praises God for his mighty acts, setting the sun and the moon and the stars in their courses, making the rain to fall and the grass to grow for his mercy in delivering Israel from their servitude and shepherding them through the wilderness, for his compassionate understanding of human weakness and his flaming heart, his heart flaming with love to bring us into his own life, into his own divine life. 
That's what Christian gratitude is always about. What God has done, what God is doing in us, and what God has promised to give to us. You can even say that Christian gratitude is far more about the giver than it is about the gift. It attunes us to the infinite generosity that God has and is in his very nature. What does the Pharisee thank God for? For his wonders at the Red Sea? For his provision in the desert? For his restoration of the temple after the exile? God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Why is this man grateful? Because he has no kinship at all. He's grateful because he is one of a kind. His religious credentials, after all, are impeccable. He fasts far beyond the minimum standard set by the law. He tithes scrupulously, not just on his income, but on everything he has. He has ascended to the heights of religious virtue, which are, for all their loftiness, very lonely. And it's for this isolation that the Pharisee is grateful. It would be hard to imagine a more thorough perversion of the Christian sense of gratitude than we see manifested in this pharisaical prayer. In fact, I want to suggest to you that in spite of its ostensible Eucharistic beginning, we could almost call the prayer of the Pharisee the perfect display of an anti-Eucharist. An anti-Eucharist. What is the Holy Eucharist, which we celebrate here at this altar, week in and week out? It's the re-presentation and the efficacious memorial of the one perfect sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, offered to the Father in thanksgiving for this greatest of all his gifts. And what is its end? What is its aim? What is its goal? Why do, why do we do this? Well, first, simply to give glory to God for what he's done for us. But second, we celebrate this great mystery so that we all, by our reception of Jesus' body and blood, might be drawn ever more deeply into communion with God, and therefore communion with each other. It's a thanksgiving that leads to communion. Where does the Pharisee's prayer lead? It leads to separation, to isolation, to a buffering of his own self from the weaknesses or sins of anyone else. He has set himself up on a kind of spiritual citadel, where he supposes no one else could ever possibly ascend to these lofty heights. His prayer is a denial of all kinship, and its result is a prideful and haughty cruelty rather than kindness, illustrated by the almost comically absurd contempt that, he, that has him speak of this humble man saying his prayers right next to him, to speak of this man in the third person to God as a kind of contemptible preacher next to him. His anti-thanksgiving leads to an anti-communion. Think about how this works in your own heart. The reason there is profundity in C.S. Lewis's famous saying that comparison is the thief of joy 
is because we're always comparing ourselves with others all the time. At least I know I am. I don't know about you. But normally, Lewis's saying makes us think of negative comparison, right? So like, gosh, if only I could shoot a three-pointer like Johnny, or why can't I be as smart as Sarah? The idea is that this robs us of joy. And that's right, that's not wrong. But this way of comparing ourselves with others tends to be more socially acceptable, right? So we don't feel awkward normally about, about verbally putting ourselves down in light of the virtues of others even if it's ultimately a kind of self-absorbed thing to do. But comparison happens in the other direction, too, even if social propriety generally restrains us from saying it out loud, or even if our own consciences keep us from verbalizing it to ourselves. We think something like, well, at least I'm not like colleague X at work who cheats on his wife, even though I sometimes cut corners on my taxes. Or at least I'm not like neighbor Y who cuts corners on his taxes, even if I sometimes gossip about other people. Or at least I'm not like one of those horrible gossips like my siblings, even if I spend too much money on myself. What does this do in every case? It makes me think I'm a different kind of person, of a whole different kind of human being than those with whom I compare myself. It puts up a wall between us. It secures my sense of self-justification, always an illusory sense, at the expense of someone else. This is not to say, of course, that we shouldn't distance ourselves from sin. We absolutely should, in the strongest possible way, whether we find that sin in ourselves or in others. What I'm saying is that we can never distance ourselves from sinners. Because when it comes to seeing a fallen brother or sister, all we can ever really say is, here at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. To do otherwise is precisely to rob us of the joy, as Lewis said, of real communion. Because it's only when we see one another as kin that we can extend and receive the consolation of true kindness. Very different from the prayer of the Pharisee is the prayer of the tax collector. The word Eucharist does not, in fact, appear in this sinner's prayer. And yet, in the context of the story, it's his prayer that is truly Eucharistic. The various liturgies by which Christians have historically celebrated the Holy Eucharist are suffused with the prayer of the tax collector. We beg for God's mercy in the Kyrie's, the Lord have mercies, at the beginning of the liturgy, when we're doing it in the complete form. And the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, have mercy on us at the end of the liturgy. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, if you've ever been to one of their liturgies, you will have noticed that they must say the word Lord have mercy, or the words Lord have mercy, about a thousand times throughout their liturgy, often just back to back to back to back to back. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. It's a wonderful refrain, a reminder of who we are before God. Some traditions also utter the prayer of the centurion right before receiving communion. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And here in our own Book of Common Prayer liturgy, we utter those wonderful words 
of the prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. The Eucharist places on our lips the prayer of the tax collector. And where does that ultimately lead? To a total breakdown of any and all of the fantasies and illusions with which we try to separate ourselves from one another, to buffer ourselves from one another. It leads to us kneeling together here at this altar, right next to one another, consultant side by side with cashier, sinner rubbing elbows with saint, all in a posture of penitent supplication with our hands outstretched, begging for our daily bread. It would be hard to emphasize more deeply our basic, fundamental, and thoroughgoing kinship with each other. We're all creatures of the Most High God, literally nothing without his gracious bestowal of life and breath. And we all have fallen miserably short of the glory for which he ordained us in desperate need of mercy. But that mercy is there for each of us when we come to this altar rail, when we remember that we're all in the same boat calling out to God for this undeserved mercy. Our utter dependence on him, on his grace, is the glue that binds us together as kin, binds us together with all who share the burden of our broken human nature. Make that kinship the reason for and the power behind your kindness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.